starting a new series this weekend called uh, Struggling with God. And uh, in this series, kind of throughout the course of it, we're going to tackle the stress points, many of the stress points of our relationship with God. We're going we're gonna to talk about how we all struggle uh, to understand God. We struggle on very high levels with that. Like, why does God interact with humanity the way that he interacts with humanity? And then we struggle all the way down to very personal levels. Like, why does God allow this in my life? Why didn't he stop this in my life? And uh, I'm going to kind of talk those things through over the next few weeks. Uh, one of the things that's true of all of our relationships with God, every one of us, is that we struggle on some level. If you ever meet a person and they say uh, they don't struggle with God, you know, they say that the Bible says that I believe it, that's good enough for me, uh, don't trust that person, run away quickly, right? Because they're not, they're not being honest. He either, either they haven't lived enough life yet and life just hasn't kicked them in the teeth enough times yet to ask those deep questions, or they're on some level of denial. Uh, if you say that I never struggle with God or those things never bug me, it, it's just not true. If you, if you have a, a, a light cliche answer to complicated questions, an answer that fits on the back of a coffee mug, then you, you have not dug into that question deep enough. Questioning God, struggling with God, trying to understand God is a normal, natural part of our relationship with God. It's the way that our interaction with God works. In fact, God himself says it, it only makes sense that it would function this way. Uh, Isaiah 55 is a great uh, passage, and verses 8 and 9 says this, God's talking, and he says, uh, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So God says, guys, there, there's a, a basic truth about our relationship with each other, and it's this, I'm God and, and you're not. I, I have a perspective on the world and on humanity and on history and on your life that you're not going to have. Uh, I'm the author of history. You are a participant in history. So I'm going to direct the world in ways that you're not going to understand, I'm going to uh, interact with your life in ways that you're not going to understand. I'm going to make decisions that to you in the short term seem like poor decisions, but for me, who's the master planner of all things, is a very wise and insightful decision. And so it, it's the nature of our relationship. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts, and my ways are higher than your ways. And what that means is, is that in our relationship with God, there is always going to be a very natural element of mystery there's going to be a natural element of question. Those things are fair and honest and even normal. And what God gives us to deal with that reality is he gives us faith, okay? So my faith is what ultimately kind of rectifies those questions. So we're going to, we're going to wrestle with some big issues here in the next few weeks, uh, big cosmic things like if God is a loving God, why do bad things happen to innocent people? If God's a loving God, how come he created a hell? If God is a just God, why is there so much injustice? Kind of those big elements. And then, and then more personal things, like why did this happen to me? Why is my family going through this? And I want you to know that as, as we have those conversations, you're not gonna get a silver bullet from me because uh, the Bible doesn't work that way, okay? So I don't, I don't have this one answer is gonna make all your questions go away. We're going to dig at the Bible. We're going to get insight from the Bible. I'm going to give you a good theology and sound doctrine and some good logic and maybe some 
insights or some reasoning that maybe you just have never wrestled with before, but it is always going to boil down to faith. God is not a math problem. Two plus two does not equal four. God is not a, a hypothesis that you prove. God is a relationship, and relationships are built on trust. If you don't have trust in a relationship, then you don't have a relationship. And so faith is where that, how that trust plays out, and the ultimate answers that kind of satisfy those big questions, there's a lot of ways to think, lots of ways to put it, but if you're a thinking person, you're going to say, well, what about this, this, and this? And I'm going to look at you and say, right, we trust God and we trust the heart of God on that, okay? So it's going to, I'm looking forward to this, but I, I want you to know that. And we're going to start this, this weekend, this series, just right there. We're going to start with this question of faith. I'm going to pose this question, can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship? Can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship? Because we're going to come back to this again and again and again, so I thought we better come out the gates this way before we talk, talk, uh, tackle the other questions. Can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship? So let's dig at this a little bit, and let's just start by defining terms. Let's, let's define what faith is, and then we'll define what doubt is, and then we'll answer that question, okay? Can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship? What is faith? What does it mean to place your faith in God? What does that actually mean? What is faith? If you got your Bibles, grab them, open them up to Hebrews chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible, there's something in the chairs. It's page 843 in those Bibles. And if you're a smartphone, iPad people, we use the YouVersion app. You can open that up, hit live event, and that's our zip code. So Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1, God defines faith for us. He says this, now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance in what we do not see. I like to paraphrase this verse and I like to paraphrase it this way. Faith is choosing to believe in what I cannot and will not ever fully understand. Faith is choosing to believe in what I cannot and what I will not ever fully understand. Back to the verse, now faith is confidence. Confidence is a, it's a steadfastness, it's a belief, it's a, it's a lock-in. I have confidence in what I hope for. Hope in the Bible is used differently than the way that we use hope in our vernacular. So when, when we say the word hope, we tend to talk in terms of wishful thinking, right? So the Indians are on a slide right now, six grand losing streak. I hope they rebound, I hope they win the division, which I'm pretty confident they're gonna do. But it's a hopeful, or I hope it doesn't rain on our open house today for the graduation party, right? So it's wishful thinking. It's not the way the Bible uses hope. Bible always uses the word hope in terms of confidence or assurance. It's more in terms of what I have decided to trust. So faith is confidence in what I hope for. I'm confident, I'm assured, it's unshakable. My hope is in Christ. My trust, my belief, we might say, is in Christ. So faith is confidence in what I hope for and assurance of what I cannot see. There's things I don't understand, things I'm not gonna grasp, things I'm never gonna grasp, but my confidence and my trust is in Christ and I'm choosing to make that happen. That's why I like to paraphrase that. The paraphrase is, faith is us choosing to believe in, 
trust in, lock on to what I will never and can never fully understand. That's what faith is, okay? So that's the definition. How does faith work? Let me show you in the Bible an example of faith. Go way to the left in your Bible, so the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 22. It's page 14 in your Bibles. Genesis chapter 22, page 14. And let me, uh, let me frame this up a little bit. Here in Genesis 22, there's, I want to introduce you to a guy, if you've never met him before, named Abraham. Abraham is one of the great kind of heroes and even founders of our faith. In fact, there's this old song called Father Abraham. If you grew up in Sunday school, you ever seen that Father Abraham? Have many sons? Anybody? Anybody? Pagans. So, uh, I mean, if you, can't, if you don't know that song, you don't know Jesus. So, but Father Abraham have many sons, right? So, th- that's, this is where this comes from. Abraham, when he was a young man, God started to ask him to do weird things. And Abraham would do them. God had a, a reason for it, because God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So, Abraham, by faith, would always do these things uh, that God asked him to do. Along the way, as Abraham was faithful to God, God looked at him and made a promise. And God said, Abraham, I want to promise you something. I promise that from you, I'm going to build a nation, a people. And today we would call that the the nation of Israel or the Jewish people. So Abraham was the father of the Jewish people. And the, the father, since our faith is drawn from Judaism through Jesus, he's the father of our faith, okay? So that's why you get the idea of Father Abraham. So I, from you, from your family, I'm going to build this nation. Now, the problem that Abraham had, he and his wife Sarah were infertile. So Sarah couldn't have a kid, but there was this promise that she would have a kid, and from that kid, this nation would be drawn. So Abraham got that as a young man. Sarah was a young woman. Waited, 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 waited. Decades later, promise still stands, but hadn't been fulfilled yet. Sarah's now 80 years old. She's 80 years old. Abraham's 100 years old. Sarah gets pregnant. It's a miracle, right? Imagine your grandma pregnant. So just keep that in your mind a little bit. And so she's 80 years old, right? She's pregnant. Miracle. Isaac is born, is the baby that they have. Isaac is the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham. So Isaac is God's faithfulness. Isaac is the key to building this great nation. Isaac is the expression of God's love. Isaac is the joy of their life. Isaac is their only son. Isaac is the apple of their eye. Isaac is everything, right? Isaac's born. He's about 20 years old. And God comes back in Genesis chapter 2 and ask something absurd from Abraham, at least on the surface, verse 1, 22 of Genesis. Sometime later, about 20 years later, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. God said, take your son, your only son who you love, Isaac, and sacrifice him as a burnt offering. The next morning, early the next morning, Abraham got up, loaded the donkey, took with him two of his servants and his son Isaac, They cut the wood for the burnt offering, and they set out for the place God told them about. So Isaac, this fulfillment of God's promise, God comes out of the blue and says, "Uh, Abraham, I want you to take your only son, Isaac, whom you love. By the way, I just want to rub your face in a little bit. Your only son whom you love, and I want you to make him a human sacrifice. 
Now, to Abraham's ear, that was a pagan ritual. Human sacrifices have been around for a long, long time, but only the godless did it. So now the one true God is asking Abraham to do something that on the surface seems godless, doesn't make sense, circumstances are weird. Gets up early next morning, heads out on the third day, two-day journey, so now it's the morning of the third day. Abraham looked up, saw the place. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. And then this next sentence fascinates me. It's the way he it says, it's underlined in my Bible. He says this, we will worship and then we will come back to you. Fascinating. He's going there to do a human sacrifice. I'm going to go up there. God showed me. I'm going to go up there. I'm going to kill my kid. But you stay here because we're going to worship and then we are going to return. What's going through Abraham's mind? They head up the mountain. They took the wood, placed it on his son Isaac. He carried the knife and the fire himself. The two of them went there together. Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Father, yes, my son when the fire here, he said, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then the two of them went on together. When they reached a place that God had told them about, Abraham built an altar, he arranged wood. He bound his son Isaac, tied his hands and his feet, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. Now you got to get this in your mind. In the system of sacrifices that God set up in the Old Testament, you would sacrifice an animal for the forgiveness of your sin. If you brought that animal to the priest, the first thing the priest would do is slit that animal's throat. And he'd bleed that animal out. So when the Bible says he reached for the knife, what Abraham was about ready to do was slit his son's throat. So he ties him up, lays him on the altar, on the wood. He's going to burn his body. I'm going to slit his throat. This is how sacrifices were made. I'm going to do this all because God told me to do it. But, verse 11, the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy, he said. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Fascinating and weird, right? Why would God do that? Why would God do that? And you can imagine that Abraham's asking these questions, right? So Abraham's not an action figure. He's a person. And, and this, is, this is his only son. And God's interacting with this person, saying all of these things that don't make any sense to him. And you can imagine what would go through his mind. You want me to what? Sacrifice your son. Why? Why, why, why would you want me to do this? Am I hearing you clearly? Are you sure this is what's going on? And then you pull it into relationships. What do you say to Sarah when you get back? Yeah, you know our kid? Yeah, I, I slit his throat and killed him. When, when you're tying your son's hands and feet, what do you say to him as you're looking into his eyes? When, when, you're, when you're reaching for the knife and the adrenaline is just cranking through your veins, What's in your mind? What, it, what is your struggle with God at that moment? Because it's a pretty big stress point for somebody's relationship. What was Abraham thinking? What's fascinating, the Bible actually tells us. So go back to the book of Hebrews, all the way back where we were just a minute ago. But go down to verse 17. So the, Hebrews chapter 11 is full of people of, that had great faith. 
and it lists them, and Abraham's in that list of people. Verse 17 of chapter 11 of Hebrews, what was going through Abraham's mind? By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son. Even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. So everything's going down, but now I got to kill my kid, okay? What was Abraham thinking? Verse 19 tells us, look at this. Abraham reasoned. He reasoned that God could even raise the dead. So in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. Fascinating. What is faith? Abraham is struggling with this, working with this, and then he reasons this out. Faith is not denial. Faith is not ignorance. Abraham is not like half caveman, didn't know to do anything about what God told him. Abraham thought this through, he reasoned it out, and he came to a conclusion. What was his conclusion? What did he reason? In our culture, we talk about faith. We're often taught incorrectly about what faith is. We are taught that we are to have faith that God will give us what we want. If you want something, then just have enough faith and God will give it to you. So, God, I want my kids to turn out okay. Well, just have enough faith. Your kids will turn out okay. Well, what if they don't turn out okay? Well, then you didn't have enough faith. See, God, I want my, uh, my marriage to be healthy. Well, just have enough faith. You better pray harder. You better have more faith. And God will give you what you want. God, I wanna, I'm, I'm single. I'm lonely. I want to meet somebody. Well, you just better have faith. Forget about eHarmony. You just better have more faith right? By the way, just go with eHarmony, but it, it, more faith, right? So we're taught that. If faith for us often is in the context of if you want something, have faith and God will give it to you. Or sometimes it works like this. Sometimes we say to God, if you do what I want, I'll have faith. So if you prove yourself to me, I'll have faith, right? So God, there's, this, there's a loved one of mine that's very, very sick. If you heal them and make them better, then I will place my faith in you. God, there's these big philosophical questions that torment the world. Uh, the, you're a God of justice, but there's injustice in the world. So God, if you deal with the injustice of the world the way that I believe you should deal with the injustice of the world, then I will have faith in you. God, if you show up in the way and at the time and in the place that I want you to improve yourself to me, then I will place my faith in you. Now, what's wrong with that definition? What's wrong with that definition is that that is not faith. That's math. God, my two plus your two equals four. And if it all comes out cleanly. So I want you to deliver I trust. I think you deliver, I trust. There's no faith in that. That's believing in what I can see and in what I can understand. There's no faith involved because faith is choosing to believe in what I cannot understand, right? Abraham reasoned. What did he reason? What, what was the logic that he brought to bear on the situation? 
Abraham did not think the situation through and to the point that God made the situation make sense to him. God, why would you have it? What was going on? Because Abraham is not the God of history. Abraham's a participant in history. So the circumstances never made sense to, to Abraham. It never, God didn't give him a vision, and, God, and Abraham was like, oh, now I see. Isaac is a foreshadowing of Christ, and so he carried the own wood, and my only son sacrificed, and you're going to write the Bible, and I'm the father of it all, and now it makes sense to me. Okay, I'll cut his throat. The circumstances never made sense to Abraham. So what did he reason? What brought him to a point of peace? This is what Abraham reasoned. Abraham reasoned, catch this, this is huge. He reasoned that the heart and the character of God were trustworthy. Abraham reasoned, God made me a promise. God does not break promises. So if I need to sacrifice my son, God will just raise him from the dead. God told me something. God does not lie. So if I sacrifice my son, God's truth will still play out. He'll just raise him from the dead. God loves me. God is not spiteful. God would never harm me. So if he asks this of me, then he'll raise my son and give him back to me because God would never cause that hole in my heart like that after he said that he wouldn't. God wants to prosper me. He's not a spiteful, vengeful, tormenting God. So if he asks me to do something weird like that, then I reason that he'll do something powerful. He created a miracle once. I mean, Sarah, she was 80. I'm pregnant. Ah, I'm a heart attack. So he'll just do a miracle again. That's what God is like. Abraham reasoned that the heart of God does not change. The character of God does not change. That God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And I can trust the heart of God knowing full well that the circumstances of my life are never gonna make sense. I can't see it because God's ways are higher than my ways. God's thoughts are higher than my thoughts. That math is never gonna add up. If I'm waiting for it to add up, I'm gonna always be left without an answer. But the solution to that problem is faith. I can trust the heart of God. So what I bank on, what I put my bet on, what I set on red and let it ride is the character in the heart of God because it will not go away. That's what makes sense. That's faith. Abraham chose to believe what he could not and would never understand. I choose to believe the heart of God. I'll never make sense of these circumstances. And he acted in faith, and the heart of God delivered in ways that he could have never foreseen. That's how faith works. Faith isn't this mystery. It's not this weird feeling that comes and goes. It's not a tingle down the spine. Faith is a decision. I'm choosing to trust the heart of God. Now, if that's what faith is, and the question is, can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship? If that's what faith is, then what is doubt? How does doubt work, and how does doubt show up in, in, uh, in real time in our lives? What does the Bible say about it? So, James, go to James, page 849, James chapter 1. If this is faith, then what is doubt? 
James chapter 1, verse 5. If anyone lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to him. But when he asks, he must believe and not doubt, because he who doubts is like the wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. That man should not think he'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all that he does. Fascinating. God calls it out as a negative. If you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously without finding fault. Why? God knows we're going to be confused. How do we know that? Because of Isaiah 55. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Of course, it's not going to make sense to you. So when you lack wisdom, you should ask God, who gives an answer. But when you receive that answer, you should not doubt. Because when you doubt, you're like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed by the wind. You're a double-minded man, unstable in all that you do. That person should not think they'll receive anything from God. What is doubt and how does it work? Let me show you the example of doubt. Go back again to the left in your Bible. It's not quite as far this time. To the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, page 193 in the Bible's in the chairs. 1 Samuel chapter 13. So let me introduce you to this guy named Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, okay? So this is later on in history. And the way that God interacted with people at this part of history was different than the way he interacts with us today because the Bible wasn't written and we hadn't received the Holy Spirit in the way that we have them now. So the way that God interacted with people at this point in history was he interacted through these guys, men and women, called prophets, all right? And God would speak to the prophets and the prophets would tell people what God said. So Samuel, first and second Samuel, is the record of the prophet Samuel interacting on God's behalf. And oftentimes he would interact with kings and other people like that. So Samuel is interacting with the king of Israel named Saul, okay? Now this is, uh, let me just fill you in on Saul a little bit. God chose Saul to be the king of, of Israel. He, uh, Samuel anointed him. God said, okay, you want a king, you got a king. God made a promise to Saul and he said this. He said, Saul, listen, bud, as long as you and I are connected, wherever you go and whatever you do, I'm gonna give it to you. Wherever you put your hand out, whatever you put your foot on, I'm gonna give it to you. When you are serving me and you are doing things on my behalf, I promise to bless that as long as you and I are connected. And so Saul, oftentimes in the ancient world, a king had to go into battle and defend his country and things like that. Saul often did that. And God said, listen, as long as you and I are connected, you're good. The way that God um, assured or demonstrated his connectedness with Saul was before a battle, the prophet would show up the prophet would make a sacrifice and then the king and the army would consecrate themselves or purify themselves before God. They would go into battle and God would, God would go before them and they would, they would thump on people, okay? That's kind of the way that it worked. The one catch was this. The king was never to make the sacrifice. You had to wait for the prophet, the way God set it up. So the prophet would come, make the sacrifice, the king would concentrate, then they'd go, the king never made the sacrifice. So here's Saul as king. The enemies, the Philistines come to town. They want to take over Israel. Saul musters the army. He goes out to face his enemy. He and Samuel, the prophet, talk. 
And Samuel says, hey, Saul, go to this place called Gilgal, hang out, I'll be there in seven days, I'll make the sacrifice, you'll consecrate yourself, God's on your side, we'll go, we'll go whoop on some Philistines, all right? Halfway through verse 7, verse 13, Saul remained in Gilgal, and all the troops with him were quaking with fear. They've been there for a while, the Philistines are there, they're intimidating. He waited for seven days, the time set by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and Saul's men began to scatter. Samuel's running a little bit late. Samuel's probably Brazilian. He's running a little bit late, right? I, just right there. He gets, the men get scared. Saul gets nervous, doesn't understand the circumstances that he's in. Where is God? Stress point. So verse 9, so he said to his men, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offerings. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. Just as he had finished making the offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. And Samuel asked, what have you done? You read that sentence in its original tone. It's not a rebuke. It's not a, what have you done? It's actually a, a it's remorse. Saul, what have you done? What have you done? Saul answers him. Uh, when, when I saw that the men were scattering and that you did not come at this time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought that the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and, and, I, and I have not sought the Lord's favor. So I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. You've done a foolish thing, Samuel said. You have not kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom will not endure the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of the people because you have not kept the Lord's command. Samuel shows up and says, Saul, what have you done? I mean, the, 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 the one thing God said don't do, you did. Well, what have you done? Well, I got nervous. I mean, the Philistines are over there and, and they're chanting Philistine stuff and, and the guys are getting nervous and I thought they were going to text, so I figured I better... I felt compelled and I decided and I offered the offering. And Samuel says, oh, Saul, Saul. God, God was gonna make your family the ruler over Israel for all of time, but you didn't trust his heart. So it's gone. God's, God's not gonna bless you. He's gone and he's found a man, very important, after his own heart. A guy that trusts God. And that's who's going to rule Israel now. And Saul is lost. Saul doubted. Abraham acted in faith. I don't understand the circumstances, but I'm trusting the heart of God. Saul acted in doubt. I don't understand the circumstances, so I'm going to trust myself. Doubt is when I trust my read on circumstances and I abandon the truth represented in the heart of God. I don't see. I don't understand. I feel compelled. I don't get it. And God would say, of course you don't. Of course, that's normal. My ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You're not God. I don't expect you to get it. If you lack wisdom, ask me. But when I give you the answer, Saul, anything that you go to conquer, you're going to find, Saul 
consecrate yourself for me. Saul, wait on Samuel. When I give the answer, don't doubt. Because now you're blown up. You're not going to receive anything from me because you trusted yourself more than you trusted me. Guys, doubt is the opposite of faith. Faith is me knowing that I don't understand it, but I'm trusting God. Doubt is me saying, I don't trust God, I trust myself. And we struggle with doubt all the time. All the time, right? So the Bible will say something, God will say something, we don't get it. God wants me to stay a virgin until I'm married? My eyes are gonna pop out of my head if I have to wait that long. That can't possibly be true anymore. Seriously? No way. God wants me to stay in this marriage no matter what? I married a moron. I'm not happy. God can't possibly want me to be unhappy. That, there's no way that that's still true. God wants my yes to be yes and my no to be no. God wants an absolute ethic. Have you, have you tried to do business in this culture today? You're crazy. There is, you can't even function that way anymore. That cannot possibly apply to me. God owns everything. My money is God's. My time is God. My life is God. They're, they're, are you serious? There is no way that's true. Here's 20 bucks, God. Here's a little tip for you. We do it all the time. God's definition of creation is God's solution to sin. Is, Jesus is the only way to heaven. There's no way that's true anymore. I don't understand it. I don't get it. I don't like it. I think. I feel compelled. I decide. It's doubt. Faith is the opposite. Faith agrees that we don't understand it, but we act anyways because we trust the heart of God. We reason that the character of God doesn't change. Doubt says, no, no, no. I abandon the heart of God. I trust myself. I'm going to act myself. And we become double-minded people, James says. A double-minded person receives an answer that they don't understand. And they replace faith in the heart of God for belief in their own opinions and thoughts. It's not that God didn't answer Saul. Saul had answers, Saul had scripture, Saul had interaction with God. Saul didn't trust the answer he got. He trusted himself. He doubted God and through that, Receive nothing. Now, what's our original question? Can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship as we've defined it? Can faith and doubt coexist in the same relationship? And the answer is what? The answer is, just look at me. Yeah, it starts with an N. Okay, no. Faith and doubt cannot coexist in the same relationship as we just defined it. Why? because I can't trust the heart of God while rejecting the heart of God. I can't believe in the truth of God while not believing in the truth of God. So as we've defined it, faith and doubt cannot coexist in the same relationship. Now catch this, look at me, I want you to catch this. Can questions and faith coexist in the same relationship? Look at the screens, watch my head. Yeah, yes, 
Can mystery and faith coexist in the same relationship? Yes. Can uncertainty and faith coexist in the same relationship? Sure. Can anxiety and faith coexist in the same relationship? Yeah. In fact, Jesus says, give me your anxiety. I'll care for it. Trust my heart. See? Can you struggle with God while loving and following God? Certainly. In fact, I would say this. If you don't struggle with God while loving and following God, then your relationship with God probably isn't that deep. Because the more that you embrace your relationship with God and the deeper you embrace God's love for you and the further God takes you on the journey of life, the less it makes sense and the greater your faith is required in order to continue that journey. In this series and just in life, I would encourage you to struggle with God. When we doubt, doubt is not questions and mystery. Doubt is the removal of trust, the biblical definition of doubt. When we doubt, what we've done, we, we, we live in this mindset that says, my doubts about God is what makes my thinking deep and philosophical. And the Bible would actually say, actually, that just kind of makes you a fool. Doubting God is a lazy answer to a complicated question. That's what Saul did. What is, Saul got lazy. Why? Because he just gave up. I don't understand. I don't like it. It doesn't make sense. Forget it. I'll just do it myself. That's a very lazy way to interact with God. Abraham is the one who actually struggled with faith. You mean what? Where? Why? Seriously. Abraham reasoned. For two days, he wrestled with it. He thought it through. He reasoned. And he landed on a very, very difficult decision. He chose to trust in what he could not and would never fully understand. So I'll just quit. Whatever. But Saul, you got these promises. Yeah. But Saul, God showed up a thousand times. Saul, God said. Doubt is a lazy solution to a complicated problem. It's the spiritual equivalent of giving up. Struggling for faith is actually how our faith is meant to work. That James says, count it joy when you face trials of many kinds, when your faith is tested, because the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you can be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Struggling with God is what makes our relationship with God mature. Struggling with God is what makes our relationship with God complete. That's why if somebody looks at you and you say, here's a very honest, very fair question, and they give you a coffee mug answer, you should ignore that person because they've never wrestled with the question. If they say, well, the Bible says it and I believe it, that's good enough for me, they've never wrestled with the question. With the, question. the Bible says it and I believe it, and I've probably had to work very, very, very hard to land on that conclusion. There aren't silver bullets. Because our relationship with God is not a math problem. It's a relationship. And every relationship is based on trust. I wrestle with, I struggle with, and God says, good, do that. Because the more you do that, I'm going to increase your faith. 
That's why I test it, because I believe in you, and I want to mature you and complete you, so let's wrestle with this stuff together. Don't be like Saul and just quit. How do I work with that? Be like Abraham. You know full well that you don't get it. You know full well it's never going to make sense. My ways are higher than your ways, guys. It's the way that it works. What you can bank on is my character and my heart. I love you. I will never leave you or forsake you. I have plans to prosper you, not to harm you. I'm going to take you. Everything works together for the good of those who love me. We're going to go through this. It's not going to shake out in all the ways that make sense circumstantially, but your life, your faith, the ultimate prospect of my plan, you're going to be right where you need to be. And the Bible says, when I interact with God that way, when I follow him by faith, it's credited to us as righteousness. It actually pleases God that we wrestle with the questions. Knowing full well that I can, that dog will chase its tail all day long. I'm going to have to come to a conclusion of faith. It's the nature of my relationship with God. Why? Isaiah 55. He thinks on a level I don't think. He works on a level I can't work. He plans on a level I don't understand. I'm a part of history. He's the author of it. I'm a part of a plan. He's the definer of it. And by faith, I choose to love the one who loves me so. Guys, I want you to struggle with God. I want you to struggle with God. When you pick and choose the Bible, all you've done is doubted. I like this part, I like this part, I like this part, but I'm ignoring that whole part. That's doubt. You just gave up. You're not even working at it anymore. When we pick and choose the parts of God that we like, I like that God's loving and God's merciful, and God's, but that whole hell thing, let's just say that that doesn't exist for real. That's a lazy answer. I love that God, God got Hitler and God got Stalin and God got Hussein, but uh, this, the whole thing that God's going to judge me, <laughs> let's just pretend we all go to heaven. That's a lazy answer. It's a lazy answer. And we haven't dug into the character of God and what he's really like and why that's actually so important and why his love is so overwhelming when we're deserving of that too. So this summer, we wanna struggle with God. We wanna look at these tough questions and we wanna run into them face first and dig deep. We're always gonna have to land on trusting the heart of our loving God who gave his heart toward us. That's all, I'm just telling you up front, that's what ultimately is gonna satisfy all the questions, okay? And so as we peel back the scriptures and we think these things through, what you're gonna see is the heart of a loving God, the heart of a loving God, the heart of a loving God. God is not a math problem, he's a relationship. And trusting that heart, see, if we don't trust the heart of God, then all the answers in the world aren't gonna matter. If we trust the heart of God, then we become people who walk by faith.